Hello and welcome to a special edition of Energy Voice Out Loud from the show floor of the Energy Exports Conference here in Aberdeen. And we're delighted to be joined today by Simon Emini, Director of Strategic Markets at LRQA. Hello, Simon, and how have we found uh, the conference so far? So far, Alistair, I've found it very interesting. There's a lot of people here and a lot of energy. There was a, a pre-dinner last night which gave a good introduction, I think, for the speakers and, and some of the leading sponsors to, to get together and talk about it. And that energy has followed through into today. Fantastic. Tell us a bit about LRQA. We're obviously at a global kind of exports market conference. And tell us a bit of how you fit into that, that wider picture. Okay, so LRQA, we are operating in 70 plus countries around the world. We work with financial institutions. We work with manufacturers. We work with project EPCs, and we also work with owners and users of equipment, looking at those large projects, looking at the risks that are associated with them and helping to mitigate those risks, focusing on the future and the success of the projects throughout their life cycle. Fantastic. Now, talking about some of those opportunities and risks, we heard from the plenary just earlier about some of the, uh, the challenges and those opportunities we have. Clearly, we have a number of different elements of the energy sector, all with targets ahead, not just in the UK, but globally. Talk to us a bit about the supply chains you deal with and some of the, the challenges they need to overcome, particularly around capacity, for example. Well, capacity is a good one, Alistair, because where we've, what we've got is we've got a lot of deadlines, deadlines that people are committed to, with COP28 coming up and the stock taking that they're going to do. There's going to be a lot of pressure on people to deliver on the commitments that they've made. Now, as that happens, supply chains start to grow. The growth of those supply chains, if not controlled, informed and assessed, will mean that they start to potentially move away from high quality into rapid production. And it may not always go the way that, that projects need to go. At that point, you may find a delay part way through and that will impact on the overall project. So for us as LRQA and the clients that we work with, we are looking to make sure that the knowledge is there, that the authenticity is there, and that they are able to move as rapidly as they desire, but in a way that controls those risks so that they don't find an issue later down the line. How does that assurance picture play out when people are trying to move so rapidly and trying to catch up? Is, can it be done in tandem in such a way as to avoid any kind of further knock-on delays, if you like? It can. There's a lot of lessons to be learned. There's a lot of cross-fertilization. There's training to be put in there, but more important than that, there's, there's a cultural element. We've seen some supply chain standards start to be published and focusing more on culture and sustainability than they are just on the quality. It's making it part of the everyday journey and not something that has to be done to comply. And, and talk to me a little bit about, I mean, I guess we're here in Aberdeen, we're here in the UK. Clearly, there's a lot to be done around manufacturing domestically and, and the work around that. How, how can we build out our supply chain here when we have, oh, we heard it at the plenary, competition with areas like the US Inflation Reduction Act, the EU Green Deal, and how, how might we fit into that picture there? The UK, I think, has always punched above its weight. It's, it's made up of, of several countries all of whom are unique, but all of whom work very well together, and all of whom are able to innovate and think outside of the box. And that's, I think, the big strength of the UK going to take what we've learned in the past, 
the vision that we, we see for the world going forward and be able to help to support that and take people on that journey with us. And I just want to get this acronym right, CFS. We're talking about the, uh, the need for a resilient supply chain and we're talking about counterfeit, counterfeit fraudulent and suspected items. I know LRQA does a lot of work in that area. Let's talk just about that as regards a resilient supply chain going forward from these areas. Okay, so CFSI if, if, is, is counterfeit fraudulent and suspect items and basically counterfeit is relatively straightforward. It's somebody taking something that they are purporting to be one thing when clearly it, it's been, it's been um, fabricated as something else. Um, suspect is where you identify something that may or may not be right. Um, and fraudulent is when you are claiming it to be something it, 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 it isn't. Now, what we see with, with emerging and developing markets is that people try to fill a gap. Equally, we see where finance is an issue, that people are, are trying to build to a price and potentially taking things down to a lower level. Um, and where a supply chain is not understood from end to end, particularly as they get longer and as projects get delayed and so items go into storage, there is a danger that items get mixed up and then are introduced as one thing when they should actually be another. So part of what we do as LRQA is work with those end-to-end -end supply chains in making sure that they get what they thought they were getting and that it does what they need it to do. Fantastic. Talking about the end-to-end, -end, not just in the supply chain, but I guess in the project timeline as well. We've talked a lot about kind of the emerging projects uh, that are coming up. A little bit about decommissioning as well, though, the tail end of a project's life cycle. If we've got delays now in terms of that supply chain capacity side, talk to us a little bit about the risks on, on that kind of end of life side as well. I think one of the things that we're a lot better at today than we were, than we were 20, 30 years ago is thinking about how we are going to decommission something at the time that we start to build it. So we've seen this with, with nuclear and we've seen it with oil and gas. If we take two example large scale um, element, uh, industries that are being decommissioned where the decommissioning was not as well thought about at the start as it would be for an equivalent project today. Now, one thing we have to be aware of with decommissioning is it's not just a case of turning it off and then it, it finishes. There is a lot of new construction that has to occur in order to decommission. So there is still a lot of equipment that has to operate and there's still a lot of processes that have to be completed. Um, as a result of that, the decommissioning element becomes something that we have to think of sustainably. And we also have to think about what are we actually going to do with this thing when we've decommissioned it? And often it's we want to recreate the item or recreate something on the same site, or it may be that we want to repurpose. And whilst we see that with old industrial buildings, perhaps in the UK, where people turn them into houses or concert venues, um, what else do we want to do with those? And how are we going to then make that decommissioned by asset, something that goes on to be useful in the future. Real example of energy transition in action there, fantastic. Quickly, you mentioned uh, nuclear. I just want to talk about that briefly. I know you've done work on that front. Clearly, we're up here in, in Scotland, and there's, even in the UK, there are different attitudes towards uh, nuclear energy. I just wonder if I could very quickly get your thoughts there, and again, perhaps, what kind of opportunities do you see for people in, in this room on that front? Okay, so nuclear, Nuclear is always a fairly emotive topic, but 
I think many NGOs have now accepted that nuclear is a required part of the transition. We're not, I'm not suggesting it's going to be the end of the transition because I think the transition will continue as, as, as we continue to evolve as a planet. But nuclear is something that will be very useful for the medium-term transition, so for the next 80 years, as a source of power, particularly as we start to, to, to decarbonize transportation, as we start to decarbonize home heating, as we start to look at large industrial processes requiring electricity for electrolyzers to, to produce hydrogen. The supply chain for nuclear is very much one that needs a high integrity supply chain, that needs a supply chain that understands what it's doing. And that is a parallel, if you like, with the, with the oil and gas market that we'd see here in Aberdeen, where people understand about traceability, they understand about qualification and suitably qualified personnel, and they understand about third party review of design and construction and the integrity that's required because they also understand that when things go wrong, hopefully not very often, but when they do go wrong, they go wrong in a fairly catastrophic way in terms of reputational risk. If you look at nuclear, we've had Three Mile Island, we've had Chernobyl, Fukushima Daiichi, and those three issues are all talked about by everyone if you mention nuclear. You have similar things such as Piper Alpha in the, in the North Sea, and again, it's something that is remembered, and rightly so, as an element of why we have to think deeply and, be in t and, and have an integrated way of, of manufacture, design, operation, and maintenance of an asset. And so that's a, a parallel with, with between nuclear and oil and gas, is that we understand the importance, and therefore we can put in place processes, systems, and the right people to bring it to fruition. Yeah, safety really underpinning everything there. Fantastic. Just lastly then, uh, Simon, clearly you're, you're here both days. Um, talk to us a bit about, I guess, uh, what your hopes are for this conference more broadly, and is there any particular message you'd be keen to see delegates uh, come away with? I think the, the, op the, the, the main message is opportunity, because there is a massive opportunity. I think, for me anyway, the second uh, message is that we're talking about decarbonizing oil and gas, but that doesn't mean we're talking about removing oil and gas. Oil and gas remains a very important part of the mix, maybe not in power generation, but certainly where oil forms part of a production of long chain um, high integrity plastics, or where we're using the infrastructure that, that we have for oil and gas to do other things with. So I think two messages, future, focus, opportunity, and, and the overall integrity. Fantastic. Well, great discussion. Thanks so much for joining us, Simon. That's us for now, but please keep an ear out for more from us from the Energy Exports Conference here in Aberdeen. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, 
Leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.